The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts 25, verses 1 through 12. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea so that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued his defense, "'Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense.' But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, No one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Audra. Well, um, there was a show that came out, oh gosh, I don't know how old it is. Um, uh, Maybe this year uh, called Jury Duty. If you've seen that show? Um, funny show, has some crass moments in it, so uh, watch or be aware. But um, very interesting and very funny show. Not what I was anticipating uh, to see. <laughs> it's about um, essentially a jury, uh, a court case that seems a little bit kind of odd and um, a little bit off, and yet... Uh, the, uh, they're picking a jury, and the whole premise of the show is that every single person, including the judge, the bailiff, all of them, the people walking in and out of the courtroom, uh, stand by all of them, they're all actors except for one person, except for one lone person. And the whole premise of the show is basically, can they pull it off, you know? Can they basically walk through this entire trial um, with this person not knowing and then like being a part of this jury? And what's, what's really incredible is you, you kind of like learn by watching how kind this man is. Like really, you kind of feel bad for him and yet you're like, no, this is awesome. You know, it's television, how they're hiding it and how they keep changing the game on him. Like they have to keep changing things and throwing kind of as wild and crazy things out there personality-wise for like whoever is, 
you know, selected as a juror and who, what their wild personalities are, but they can't go so far to like reveal that it's all fake. They have to kind of hold it back. It's just enough. And that the guy didn't even, it's just unbelievable. You should see it. But, you know, we're finishing a book on Acts. And if you've noticed in the last several moments as we have unpacked this book that Luke wrote as his second volume, that we're spending a lot of time in a court setting, lots of time. And everything around Paul seems to be rotating. It seems to be switching. For the last two years, Paul was in, and as we looked at even last week, in the custody of a man named Felix where Felix entertained himself with Paul. He basically kept him in prison, and he'd say, oh, that's kind of enough, Paul, go away. And he'd bring him back, and he'd say, okay, what do you have to say today? And he'd talk to him more about the gospel and righteousness and living according to following Jesus, and he was like, all right, that's enough. Go away, come back. I mean, he basically did that for two years. And then Felix is upended. He doesn't do his job well. He's taken out because he doesn't keep the peace. And here comes a new person, Festus, and with Festus, we don't know much about him. Uh, in fact, it jumps right into his ruling, so to speak, here. And as Festus is ruling and as the governor, procurator of, of uh, you know, this area uh, of where Paul is, we don't not only see much about him, but the little that we do see, we see enough to think this guy really is out of his depth. He's really out of his depth. He can't handle it. So with all the complexity, he has this group over here, even two years later, still wanting to try and take Paul out, whether it's by an assassination attempt or um, bringing him down through a court hearing. And then he's still over here with Paul saying, why is this guy in my care? And in other places in, in these chapters that we can't, there's so much material that's just, he just thinks Paul's kind of crazy. He even says at one point, you've studied too much. All the learning has gone to your head. You're crazy. <laughs> so how does, Paul, how does Paul deal with this? You know, it's funny because we've been looking at a lot of material that seems like just raw narrative accounts. There's not a whole lot to it. But you know what's interesting is, as we see Paul dealing over and over with what it means to be in a courtroom setting, you wonder when you read the letters of Paul, when he draws out what it's like to be in relationship to the Lord and others, guess what illustrations he draws out the most? Courtroom settings. What it means to be in appealing our lives before the Lord and before others. What does it mean? <clears throat> we spend so much of our time doing that. If you think about what it's like to live day to day just in our lives, we're not in the same position as Paul. We, not even close. In some ways, you may read this and go, how do I connect to this? I'll tell you how we connect to this. Paul is consistently over and over, and you can see it in the letters that he writes, like 1 Corinthians, Philippians, those kind of letters, that we spend so much of our lives in the courtroom of appealing. Appealing before God, appealing before other people, appealing before ourselves, trying to make sense of, am I okay? Do, do I really have 
to dry, trying to justify ourselves, trying to hold something there, trying to make something approved before anyone, including ourselves. And I think what's interesting about this that we're going to look at is just two things from this passage is how Paul in this courtroom setting gives us two things. One is, what does it mean to have wisdom in complexity? What does it mean to live with wisdom in really a complex, kind of strange, consistent courtroom setting? And then finally, what does it mean to appeal for justice? To appeal for justice, true justice. You know, Paul is in an interesting place. I mentioned for the last two years, he's been kind of comfortable with Felix, (laughs) calling him back and forth, and yet without a whole lot of worry about what was going to happen, his his kind of uh, jail sentence was more of a house arrest. (laughs) It was more of him being comfortable enough so people could visit, uh, more enough where he could have the food he needed, uh, the life he could kind of have. But now Felix has been removed, and the reason he was is he could not, and this is a major key aspect of being a governor, he could not keep the Jewish Gentile unsettling in his land done right. If if there's one thing you did as a Roman governor, if you wanted to move up in the ranks, you had to keep the peace. This is why so many of them, including Felix, were so brutal in keeping the peace. If there was some sort of riot, he he didn't just stop it. He crushed it because he knew the only way to work your way up or or to have a good name or reputation as a Roman ruler was you, you gave an iron fist. Felix messed up on that one, was thrown out. Here comes Festus in, in, and all of the respect and all of the life that Paul has is now changed. It's flipped. The court has changed. (laughs) Everything he thought he had, now Festus is like, well, why do I have this guy? These people want him. Why not just give it to him? Why not just give Paul to him? There's a lack of respect. With change of rule comes change of respect. Um, Little window into some of my study. When I study, sometimes I listen to, um, I can't listen to music that has lyrics in it. So I listen to soundtracks. I don't know what kind of person you are when you study and stuff. So sometimes when I study for my sermons, I'll listen to things like, I know that you're going to laugh at me, but like Braveheart or Rudy or like Miles Davis, you know, like things that are like jazz, like good jazz. I just need a little bit in my head, you know? And, um, but Rudy is one of those that I go back to over and over. I don't know if you know, you're like, some of you are like Rudy. Uh, Rudy is a soundtrack from an actual movie that's based on a true story about a guy named Rudy Rudiger, who uh, was a walk-on at, at Notre Dame ages ago. And in fact, when the movie came out, this is an interesting fact, uh, the, uh, the movie came out in the 90s, the walk-on percentage of people at universities in America like doubled or tripled. Like it was like, people were like, yeah, I'm going to be the next Rudy. Um, It's a great movie, really inspiring, uh, tough. um, But it's interesting as as he's, part of the movie um, that made me even think of this was that one of the big parts of Rudy Rudiger and his work over and over, his desire, his longing, it was to come out of the tunnel and it just play on the Notre Dame team. He just wanted to be on the field. He didn't even necessarily want to be like a starter. He just wanted to 
wear the uniform, have the helmet. I mean, he just wanted to make something of himself in that moment. And so he's worked his whole life to get through this. And he has this coach who, who really sees this in him and sees his heart. And then all of a sudden, the coach leaves. And that that it turns over and a new coach comes in and sees him as a nuisance. And kind of like, what? okay, great, but we, don't, we need to focus on this guy so much, let's do this. And it flips it and all of a sudden his dreams of coming out of that tunnel are on shaky ground. Just because of switch of, of rule. It's the exact same thing that's happening here. All of a sudden, the two-year, as Felix even knew, in the back of his mind, even though he kept Paul in jail for himself, in a sense, knew that Paul was innocent. Here comes Festus, and he's kind of like, you know what, I don't care if it's two years. This group over here wants him, and I need to keep the peace. I'm willing to give him to him. But what is he showing? He's showing foolishness. He's showing what's interesting. He's showing that his court and what he keeps is not about what's right, not about what matters, but that it's all about him. If there's any good definition of what foolishness is, it's that we center this world around us. What true wisdom is, as the Bible puts it, is that this world is not revolving around us. It revolves around God and his world. In fact, deep biblical mining of this is talking about foolishness. Listen to this. Two basic things of reality. One is that there's an order to this world and that's created and we can't just live however we want and that is opposite of this. There's a reality of that. And yet most of the time we've seen a pattern with these Governors, but especially with Festus, he's like, I'm gonna do whatever I need to to kind of maintain this and whatever I want. But the second thing is, is there's a broken and sinful world and trying to live according to the rules perfectly still doesn't work. It's that he has a, he has a decision to make and he's unwilling to make it. And the only reason he wants to make it the way he does is to keep his positioning by getting rid of Paul. What's easy He's trying to shortcut it. See, foolishness does that. In fact, the deeper definition of foolishness in society was someone who was a menace to it because they ruined community life and order. He's thinking Paul is that, but he's actually the one doing it. He's willing to let it get crazy for the sake of holding his own position. And he's trying to, He's trying to cut under it. He's trying to find the easy way. He's trying to find how can I hold my position of power without having to really deal with what's hard, what's complex. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is not a doorway. It's a path. Wisdom isn't something you just walk through. It's not a position. You don't earn it by getting into a spot or whether we hold it as a parent, as a president, as a you know, CEO, as a leader. Just because we hold something doesn't mean we have wisdom. It doesn't mean we know how to handle the complexities of life. It can easily shortcut that. Because wisdom, as it says, is a path. It's following what? God's word. Remember what 
Christians were called in, the, in this, the way. Remember over and over, the other thing that keeps coming up in these court settings, and you don't see it in this necessarily this passage, but it comes up again next, is that what's opposite of this? Well, the way, it is, what is it the way? The following, following of Jesus and who he is. It's not a doorway, it's a path of following after our Redeemer and Savior. It's following him to life. There's no shortcut for that. And it's learning that this world doesn't revolve around us. The greatest of leaders, the greatest of of human beings who live this world realize that they bend the knee not just so they can gain whatever they want, but because they know it's not about them and what they want. This is why in Proverbs, the book that unpacks over and over wisdom, it says, what is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Why is the fear of God that? Because we fear everything else. We appeal to the courts of our lives because we're afraid of what it might say back. We appeal to those closest to us, hoping they still like us. We appeal to ourselves, looking at ourselves in a mirror or at the end of a day, because we are afraid of the verdict that comes back. But what does it really mean to fear God is the beginning of wisdom? If you fear God, the one who's the creator, the one who above all things knows all things, If that's the beginning of wisdom, to fear him makes all other fears in their right size, then it places you in wisdom of what does it really mean to live this life? Then you can see yourself in everything else for what it is. You can fear a God who doesn't just say, fear me because I can smite you, but fear me because I hold all the power and yet where do I put all the justice? I put it on my son. See, this is where Paul knows the difference between sitting in Festus's court and the court of the Lord is that appealing for justice is a very different thing. Paul realized the system was compromised. Paul knew it. Paul knew sitting in this courtroom after he stayed among them, not more than eight days or 10 days, He went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down to Jerusalem stood around him. Stood around him. You can imagine, there's a sitting, there's a standing, right? So there's a sitting of who's supposed to be in authority. There's a standing of all the accusers around Paul, bringing many and serious charges against them they could not prove. They couldn't prove a thing, and yet Paul argued in his defense, neither against any of the laws of the Jews, nor the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on charges before me? Why is he asking Paul that question? Do you get the, do you get the joke here? He's cutting it. So he can't have to deal with it. He's asking Paul the question that he should be answering. That's his foolishness. I remember I, I was, um, I ran track, uh, I, I walked on 
uh, in track in college. And I got the privilege to, just for a couple of years, uh, run with somebody who was uh, a guy named Michael Johnson. Have you heard that name before? Um, I was not of that caliber, just to make it very clear. But I did get to do this thing on Mondays uh, because I was an outlier and uh, I, was, I did a, a different event than Michael did. And um, so on Mondays, we did what were called infinite 200s. It is as bad as it sounds. So they would put cones on the track and they would make you run around the track and they'd have a buzzer go off. And one sound was for the men and one was for the women. And so it almost sounds like for an animal, right? Like, like I would run and, and you would try and hit the cone around the track and it'd buzz and it, it, if you were on the buzzer, you know, you were on pace, right? Kept you on pace. Well, because I was in a different event, group of events than, than others, they threw me in with Michael and like the other two, three guys that were training for the Olympics that was coming up in 96. I'm just like, oh yeah, let's throw this guy in there. So I literally am handing the baton to Michael Johnson. Okay, that's, um, so <laughs> we're doing these 200s and so I hand mine to him, and he just goes, Poosh! like, I'm behind the cones, like, barely breathing, hand it to him, he's running. And the guy in the other lane, who's also training for the Olympics, um, gets the, the deal and jumps across the track and cuts across the field just to catch up and jump back on the track with him. And, you know, everybody breaks out laughing. It's funny. But, but at, the, at the time, you're like, oh, yeah, but you can't do that. Like, why? You know, I, I would have got, they would have run me off if I'd done that, right? They're like, oh, yeah, there's the walk on. Get out of here. You know, we knew you'd do that. Um, but th- what, you can't shortcut that. You can't shortcut that. You don't, there's nothing in there. You can't train to grow if you do that kind of thing. It was funny, but it doesn't work. Guess who was the only one that made the Olympics? Michael. <laughs> Festus is showing himself here, not only his lack of wisdom, but that his view of justice is not about distributing his power. It's about holding it and it's about keeping his position. Look, he's appealing for his own court. How do I keep the peace? He remembers Felix got kicked out. Why did Felix get kicked out? Because he couldn't handle it. Because he couldn't keep the peace. He couldn't quell what was going on. He was like, I'm not going to have that problem. Hey, uh, Paul, don't you want to be tried over here? Why? And Paul literally is like, why are you asking me this? Justice in the Roman system was measured by how you kept that, by power and what you could get, by flexing your muscle, by keeping the peace. And here's what's interesting. When Christians in history, it's documented, like Paul, this, this, is, this was one of many that kept happening. Like Paul when those who were Christians are a part of the way, the following of Christ, and they recognized they were also Roman citizens, it became a major issue in the Roman government. And what began happening was they began seeing the erosion of Roman citizenship. Justice that should be served and what Paul knows brilliantly, and this is why Paul says, I'm standing before before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. Hello? 
Why are you asking me this? Because already in this, the erosion of justice has happened. Paul is having to be his own advocate again and again and again. And he has to appeal for something greater. He has to appeal above that. And he, here's what, I, I've recognized this after studying it quite a bit. It was really interesting that Paul actually in this moment when he says, I'm standing in Caesar's tribunal, he throws out something that's from 509 BC. It's an ancient thing called provatio, which is an appeal that a Roman citizen could basically throw out and it moves the case up all the way. It's almost like, it's almost like in that moment in the office when, you know, Steve Carell's character comes out and he's bankrupt and he goes, I declare bankruptcy, you know, and, it's, and they're like, that's not how it works. You don't just yell it like it happens, you know what I mean? But when he said this, it was, he knew, Festus knew, he was saying, you're declaring something that's ancient that I have to hold to. This is why he ends it with saying, to Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And you see even later that people are like, if he didn't say that, this would have been way easier for him. But Paul knew this is what he had to do. He appeals for a higher court because the only thing he knows is to be his own advocate over and over. And you and I know how exhausting that is. I can't imagine what that was like for Paul. Constantly trying to figure out, is this person gonna give me justice or not? And yet, knowing there's only one who can give him true justice. Look, uh, I know y'all have heard me mention this a million times. But man, this shot straight to my heart thinking about this moment. Over the last several years uh, after our flood, being one of the most difficult, some of you have been so kind just saying, how are things, you move back in. We have gotten to move back in our house and those kind of things. I think that the most wear and tear that has caused me more grays, more <laughs> difficulty, more emotional diff heartache has been how much I have had to be my own advocate. And that is not a shot on anybody. It's just like in these moments, you see where I'm on the phone with the government, where I'm having to go sit in on a local, literally like our local city council meetings, which feel like a bad Parks and Rec episode, like no lie. I've, had to go, I've gone downtown and sat with the director of TEMA. I've been in a million different things on a million different calls and over and over it feels like the can is kicked down the road. And the one thing I keep going back to is unless I push, nothing happens. And it's not like I've succeeded in everything. God has been very kind, so have many of you and other people have been very kind. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like it's failed and also succeeded. The Lord has been gracious. <laughs> but to feel that deep part of my soul where you have to say, again, where is the justice? And I, I, in no joke, when I watch on television, when there is a natural disaster somewhere, I, the first thing I think of is, do these poor people have anyone who's going to walk with them through it? Some of you know what that's like. Some of you have been in a place where to appeal to justice 
in any way on your own, or maybe you actually work in a, in a legal setting, it is so exhausting. And you may know that not only on a, on a very pragmatic level, but we all know that on a very emotional, relational level. There are people over and over in our culture right now that are constantly having to appeal for their own advocacy. There are people in this room that are feeling that, that are dealing with that in reality. It's a real thing. And to see, think about Paul, like I, the thing about this passage that, that, that really is incredible to me is that Paul knows what true justice is. He knows who his true advocate is, and yet he's willing to ride this wave to say, God, you will take me wherever you want the gospel to be preached. And yet he talks in many of his letters, and you'll see as we finish the book of Acts, the wear and tear of his body, the wear and tear of his soul, the wear and tear of his heart. Y'all, we need to begin embracing the fact that we don't have to live this life thinking we're our own advocate. The Lord Jesus, in the midst of feeling like we're in a courtroom setting with someone who's in power and all our accusers standing around us, or be it one accuser, that is the, the evil one, or maybe all those people that we see on social media, or all the people that we've known about, or we see, or we sit next to, or have walked in this room, and the accusations fly. Where is your advocate? Where do you appeal for justice? Because if you appeal anywhere else other than in the courtroom of the Lord himself, you will try and seek justice out in a way that will cause bitterness, it will shrink your soul, it will not move you to righteousness and godliness and to pursue following your Lord. It will produce more anger and more demanding of things rather than a humility. The Lord has set this up for us and this table in front of us is the greatest picture of it. If there's anyone who held all power and yet shows us everything about what it means to come in contact with true justice and mercy, it's at this table. This table shows you with body and blood that true justice was served and yet it reminds you that it could have been yours and mine. The one who held all power delivers justice and yet brings you mercy. This is what got Martin Luther, the reformer, who we just celebrated recently about in 1517 in, uh, at the end of October when he nailed the 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg. He was doing that knowing and he, even reading him, talking about at, when he viewed the cross, that is when he understood justice and mercy were fused together. 
He had constantly in his mind and heart went to the courtroom of God, hating God himself. Even as as someone who was a, a monk, he hated God because he kept bringing everything to him and never felt acquitted. Never actually, not felt, never thought he was. God, do you really deal with my sin? When you taste this, you're tasting true justice. And you can appeal to this God. See, whether now we receive justice perfectly in this life or not right now, what justice means biblically is that one day he will make that justice whole. The things we feel, the things we see in the Middle East, the things that we experience here, the things we have in our own soul, God will renew it and make it right. And the only way we can live as people in hope is if, like Paul, we appeal to justice in the right courtroom first and know that he has acquitted us and that we live in him. Praise be to God. We're gonna read together an ancient creed that the apostles that was put together called the Apostles' Creed in the fourth century. Let's stand together and let's read this creed.